Bibles now, and if you'll open them to Revelation chapter 10, I'm making my fourth attempt to try and finish this chapter, and we will finish this tonight. Uh, The 10th chapter is an interlude between the sounding of the sixth and the seventh trumpets. Uh, The seven trumpets are judgments that God brings upon the earth, and each judgment comes in succession, and each one is worse than the one that comes before it. These seven trumpets are actually part of the seventh seal that's on Redemption Scroll. And that seal is the battle plan, so to speak. It's the title deed to the earth that will lead to the ultimate victory of the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom over the kingdom of darkness that's led by Lucifer, who is the arch enemy of God. Now, the events of the seventh trumpet, uh, seventh seal, I should say, are truly frightening. They are intense. They're deadly serious because the world is about to be purged from its curse of unrighteousness, the unrighteousness that has ruled almost since the very beginning of creation. And there are mighty cosmic players that are in this conflict. We have God the Father, and He is the one who constructs the plan. He hands that to Jesus, who implements the plan. You have myriads of elect angels and fallen angels that are in a great galactic struggle. There are other leaders like Michael the archangel. And his name, as we've discussed, means one like God. And he's the counterpart of Lucifer who at one time was known as the morning star. He's perhaps the most beautiful angel of all. But in his pride he was lifted up and he decided that he wanted to be in God's place, and he tried to lift himself up above the stars of God. And really what we're talking about here is is the story of his defeat. And for sure it is the story of God's glory, but what God does in this, he's using his overwhelming power and his majesty to overthrow evil. And as he does that, his most glorious attributes of, of holiness and righteousness and mercy and justice... Those are put on display. And so what God is doing here, he's helping us to understand something about his character. Something about how great a God that he truly is. Now many people struggle with trying to understand why an almighty God would permit evil in the universe. And there are many who even blame God because evil exists. And so they throw up their hands or they shrug their shoulders and they say, well, why doesn't God do something about it? There really is a God. Why doesn't God just do something? And they don't understand that they are also part of the problem. And so for God to do something, he has to do something with them also. Because as self-righteous as people claim to be and think that they are, the Bible still says that we are enemies of God. And we justly deserve destruction. You know, it's just as great a mystery as to why God would allow any one of us here in this room to even have the next breath. I mean, that's just as great a mystery as we wonder why God doesn't deal with rapists and murderers and homosexuals and all of that. I mean, we're all sinners. We're we're all against God, enemies of God without Christ. And if we were just given pure justice without Christ's satisfaction for our sins, then every one of us would be plunged into hell in a heartbeat. But here we have God with this plan to redeem the world from the curse of sin. And chapter 10 is just a little interlude in the continuation of that plan that started back with the rapture of Jesus when he came back, when he comes at the uh, second coming to take his people home. 
As I said, this is our fourth attempt to finish the chapter, so we're going to read a few verses here tonight. Uh, We'll start with the opening two verses, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down to verse number 8 and read to the end of the chapter. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we look into God's Word. Revelation chapter 10, beginning with verse number 1. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, And his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth. Now let's go to verse number 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel, and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for those who come tonight to hear your word, and we just ask you, Lord, you'd help us to explain the word as you'd have us to, and may we see the truths that you have in this portion of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Three weeks ago, we began with that controversy in verse number one of this chapter, uh, speaking about the identity of the angel. And there are many people who believe that, and they have good reason to believe, that this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've come to that conclusion after the two messages that I preached on that particular part, and you, you've come to the conclusion it's Jesus, then that's fine with me because I'm not going to strenuously argue that point any longer. But I personally believe that this is Michael the archangel. So point number one in the outline that we've been following is the appearance of the angel. And this angel does have characteristics that match some of the things that we see in Scripture uh, concerning Christ's Christ, uh, attributes. But there's nothing really in anything that we've talked about here that would preclude this angel from being Michael or some other mighty angel. Now, I think by looking at the text here that the logical choice for us, descriptions that are given are so closely related to Christ and one like Christ that I think that Michael is the one who fits this. Uh, Again, his name means one like God. And then we moved on from the appearance of the angel to the assurances of the angel. Uh, The strength and the size of this angel is really the believer's assurance because he comes in the midst of terrible catastrophes and he comes at a time when the people of God are severely persecuted and they're wondering, where is God and what is God doing? Is God the one who's really in control? And so when this angel steps down and he puts one foot upon the earth and one foot on the sea, he shows the mighty sovereign power of God. A strong leg standing on the sea and on the land, that is a symbol that God has claimed the earth as his own. The whole earth belongs to him. David said in Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. And so seeing this angel is assurance to these beaten down Christians. They've seen the terrors of the tribulation. They've tasted the wrath of the Antichrist. And so now it's just reassuring 
and all the wrath that's taking place and all the things that are happening, the Antichrist is there and what he's doing. It's just reassuring to see God's mighty angel standing upon the earth and claiming this earth for Almighty God. Just like the explorers of old, here is an angel that plants his feet on the land. He plants the flag of the world's sovereign. And so that's comforting to God's people because now they know that victory is assured. If they ever have any doubt, then they certainly know who's in control now. You know, I think there are times that uh, we as Christians have difficulties in our life. There are problems, and sometimes we're wondering who really is in control. And we get so upset about things. I mean, people get terribly upset about the economy, and many Christians are really worried about that. Uh, the retirement check is not as it used to be. The, the house payments went up, or maybe even a house is lost. The job market is tough. Prices are high. And as harsh as that might sound, and I really don't mean to uh, add to that despair, but I think you need to be aware that the economy is not God's chief concern. Preserving America is not God's highest priority. Now, God's people have not only lived in economic duress, but in the past times they've lived under very intense persecution. And through all of that, with all the things that have happened, it never changed in the least not even for one moment, God's care and concern for his people. And what God has done through those things, he's just built stronger, more dedicated, consecrated Christians. Adversity always does that for the people of God. And the reason is, it's during those times that we learn to depend totally upon God. We have to look to him, and we don't look to the government, we don't look to the employer to take care of us, we look at God, and he promises that he will help us. So here we see this mighty angel and just his appearance there is great news. It's hope for God's people. Now next we came to the announcement of the angel. This is where we left off last week. The, the angel says in the end of verse number 6 that there should be time again no longer. And then in the seventh verse he said the mystery of God should be finished. Time again no longer. What's that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that this point here is the end of all things. But that phrase actually means all delays are done. The mystery of God is about to be revealed. And that mystery is why has God taken so long? I mean, back since uh, almost the beginning of time, when Adam first ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when he sinned against God, God cursed man and he cursed the ground. And the constant thought of all the redeemed of God since that time is when is God going to fix all of this? When is God going to condemn evil forever? When will God set up his kingdom on this earth? And indeed, that's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, the redeemed in all of creation is asking this very question. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. So we've been waiting. All of creation is waiting. 
And now the angel says all the delays are done because God is now putting into play these final stages that will make the world completely new again. So we come then to verse number 8, and there is a voice that commands John to take the book out of the hand of the mighty angel. And I want to remind you the reason why this is called a little book. It's called little because that's in comparison to the size of the angel. And it has to be a little book because of what John is told to do. He's told to handle it, and then he's told to do something else uh, that means, it really means that it's going to have to be a little book. And so John is not able to do this, do this if that book is on the scale of the angel. So the book that we're talking about here is Redemption Scroll. It's that seven-sealed book. Now all the seals have been broken. The book is completely open. And we notice here that John is told to do a very peculiar thing. He takes the book out of the hand of the angel, and the angel says to him, take it and eat it up. You know, I know what it means to eat words figuratively. There are some times when I make mistakes when I'm speaking, or I may make wrong judgments and say the wrong thing, and I know what it's like to have to eat your words. I also know what it's like to open mouth and insert foot. I do that sometimes too. But I've never actually had to do what John is told to do here because he's told to eat this book up, and not in a figurative sense. This is not a literal sense. Now, I'll let you figure out how God gets it back from him after he eats it up, but I do know this, that God's powerful enough to do it. So John takes the book out of the angel's hand, and the angel warns him beforehand. He says, now, when you eat this, it's going to taste good in your mouth. It's going to be sweet like honey, but it will make your belly bitter. Now, what does that mean? Why do we have that kind of symbolism? I mean, there really has to be something here for us to learn from this. And there are many suggestions as to what this is all about. But I think the very best place that we can go to get some understanding about what's taking place here in Revelation chapter 10 is from a passage that we find all the way back in the Old Testament. So take your Bible now and let's turn to uh, Ezekiel chapter 2. The Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 2. And we're going to read this entire chapter. And I believe that this is really a vivid explanation of what's going on in Revelation chapter 10. So Ezekiel chapter 2, and we'll read a little part of, a little bit of chapter 3 as well. Verse number 1, it says, And he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. The Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me, and set me upon my feet, that I heard him that spake unto me. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this very day, for they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. Thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house, Open thy mouth, and eat that I give thee. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. 
and he spread it before me, and it was written within and without, and there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest, eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then I did eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Now this scroll that Ezekiel ate was the word of God. The roll here is the word of truth. And when he eats the book, it's sweet. Why is it sweet? Well, because it's the sweetness of salvation. That's what comes from the Word of God. The Word of God is God's truth. It's sweet to the ears. It's sweet to the heart of a person. It's comfort and blessing to a person or to a child of God. I mean, these are comforting words. This, these, as the song we sing, are, are, are beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. For a person who's hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the Word of God is filling, satisfying. The Bible tells tells us in beautifully poetic terms about a person who would bring good news of salvation to others. In Isaiah chapter 52, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that thus saith unto God, unto Zion rather, thy God reigneth. And listen to this remarkable prophecy concerning Christ in Isaiah 61. There it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Now, surely that that is a parallel to what John's told to do. Ezekiel ate up the truth of God's word, and that means that he took it in. It means that he assimilated. It means he digested it into his soul. And whenever God's word is in you and you take that word and you give it to people, God has people out there that are prepared to hear it. There are those that have been chosen by God to believe that word. And so God prepares them, they receive it, and when the joy of that word comes, the deliverance from their sin comes. And when salvation comes to a lost sinner, it is sweetness. Nothing is sweeter than that. And there's a lesson in this first part for us, because whenever God's Word is in you, when you have digested it, then the next thing you're to do is to speak it. You're to testify of God's Word. Now, I'll get to it a little bit more in just a minute, but the Word is not for us alone. It's not just for you. The Word is for a world that's dying in sin. And this Word of truth is the only thing that can satisfy thirsting spirits. The psalmist said, "'How sweet are thy words unto my taste!' Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So yes, indeed, the word of God is sweet. But here we see the picture changes. Salvation is sweet. The truth is sweet. And sweet to those who hear it with the Holy Spirit's convicting power. But let's notice here what happens when the sweet word hits his stomach. Now I'm going back to Revelation 10, verse 10 here. You keep your finger there in Ezekiel just a minute. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth, sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. So why do these wonderful words of life, why does it turn to bitterness? Well, it turns because of the distastefulness of destruction. 
Now let's go back to Ezekiel for just a moment. There God told Ezekiel to eat the roll of the book. It was sweet when he tasted it because that was the word of God and God's truth is delightful. I mean, if you're a child of God who regularly studies God's word, you know how each day that you read the word, there are all these little gems that start popping up. They just glisten and they sparkle. There are things in the word of God that will lighten your eyes, they'll lighten your mood, and you realize it is truly sweet. But the message that Ezekiel was to give was to a rebellious people. In that third verse of chapter 2 in Ezekiel, God said, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this day. And if you go on reading in that third chapter, you'll see another remarkable resemblance between Ezekiel and John. Both of them are in the presence of the holy angels of God. Both of them are told to deliver a message. Now, the message that John is given turns bitter when he starts to contemplate what that message says. Now, it's sweet because it's the truth, but it's bitter because it bears a message of destruction. Now, when Ezekiel spoke, when he went to speak to the people of Israel, there was hope there. There's still hope. I mean, God told those people, he said, if you'll turn from your wicked ways, if you'll repent of your sin, then I'll take care of you. You won't die. But John's not given that kind of message. There, there is no repentance here because... The day is over. The day of repenting is over. And it's exceedingly bitter in his stomach because what he sees here is God's wrath is poured out. So the angel says, time is over. The delay is done. And so after all of these centuries of waiting on God to do something, God is ready to establish his kingdom and there is no wickedness that will slow him down. God's grace and his mercy has all been expended and now there is certain judgment that's coming. Now the bitterness of this message makes it frightening beyond belief. Now, I told you a few weeks ago that we are really in the scariest part of the book of Revelation. And I don't say that because of demons like scorpions. We've studied about those. And I'm not saying that because there are riders on horses that breathe out fire and brimstone. There's a measure of fright in that, of course. That's a scary thing. It's a frightening image. But even worse than staring into the face of a demon from hell, folks, is staring into the face of Almighty God. Now we sing, oh, what a Savior, what joys express. His eyes are mercy, his word is rest. You file that song away at some point because things are going to change. Because this Savior who comes has eyes of flaming fire. His feet are like brass that are burned in a furnace. Out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. There's no mercy, there is no love, there is no compassion in this. He is the avenger. He's the sovereign. He's the judge. And also, he's the jury and the executioner. Now, we go back to the book of Isaiah for just a moment, and we were reading that one scripture there, and it talks about Christ binding up the brokenhearted and about setting captives free. But did you notice when I was reading that, the last part of what we read? Let me, let me just read it to you again. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, that's where we are in Revelation. This is a declaration of the day of vengeance of our God. Now, isn't that amazing, the scope of the prophecy that we see there? Because in one part of it, 
Jesus is speaking of salvation for his people. And then in the very next breath, he skips over all of that time period that comes afterward to the summation of the ages, and he says, the day of vengeance of our God. And do you know that's the consistent message of Christ? You can go to the Gospels, and you see this very message in the Gospel accounts. Jesus spoke about salvation, and in the very same discourses where he talked about saving his people, he also talked about terrible warnings of judgment. In John chapter 5, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And then, listen, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Now, the first part of that, you may remember, that was the message that I preached on Easter Sunday morning. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and the dead shall live. And if you remember, when we talked about that, that's not speaking about the dead and the end of the ages. It's not talking about the second coming of Christ. That particular part is talking about men who are dead in trespasses and sin. They shall hear the word of the Lord, they will believe it, and they shall live. But you notice he goes on and he skips over that big time period again and he says there's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. Then in Matthew 13 he said, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing, gnashing of teeth. See, that's the message of the Gospels. I mean, it's all right there. This is what Christ says over and over again. Now, here we have this proclamation in Revelation that these things are going to take place. We have it in the gospel accounts where Jesus preaches it, and yet there are people who completely miss this part of the message. And so what they end up with is this sweet Jesus that they can wear like a trinket around their neck. Their Jesus dispenses love and mercy and grace, and never would their Jesus ever harm one single living creature. I mean, their Jesus is the one who sees a fly without a wing. And despite the ugliness of the fly, Jesus reaches down and repairs the wing and sends the fly off to land on another pile of dung somewhere. This is Jesus who flits about on butterfly wings and is a daisy stuck behind his ear. And he tells you to smile because God loves you and he wants you most of all to be loved and respected for whatever lifestyle it is that you choose to live. This is the Jesus that blesses the beast and the children and demands self-respect and self-esteem because, after all, you need to take care of yourself. You're the only you that there is. Now, for goodness sake, folks, we need to read the rest of the verses. There's also judgment that comes. He comes in wrath. He comes in hot anger. Jesus comes with vengeance on his mind. You know, I'm so sick of hearing this all the time. This is just a common thing that people say, God hates sin, but God doesn't hate sinners. Did you know in God's mind that sinners are not separate from their sin? If there is sin on them, then God hates sinners. Listen to what he says in John. Jesus said it himself in John 3.36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, you figure out how the wrath of God abides on sinners that he loves. God loves you when you're no longer at enmity with him. God loves you when you have been reconciled 
to Him through the blood of Jesus Christ, through your faith in Him. Now, make no mistake about this, folks. We can't be namby-pamby about those who think that Jesus is just another way to God. Now, the Bible teaches that those who are not reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ are God's enemies. And what does the Bible say right here? God has vengeance on his enemies. Now, some of you might think, well, what you need to do, you just need to tone that down a little bit. I mean, Pastor, tone it down. I mean, let's, let's, uh, let's opt out here for generic Christianity. Let's, let's get over here where they serve lattes and they do skits for messages. And, and uh, at the end of the service, I'll pass you out a smiley sticker and tell you to go spread a little cheer in your world today. You know, smell a rose, touch a child, kiss a stranger or something. Well, we just happen to be right here in the part of Revelation that ends with a flaming fire. It ends with God burning up the world and purging it of wickedness. Now, is it wrong for me to do this then? Should I, should I not preach like this? No, I'm just reading God's words. Well, people say, well, that's a hate message. No, it's not. It's the same message, the very same truth that God has declared himself. You know, what God does, he tolerates sin and wickedness now in some measure. And he does that because he's giving people space to repent. But there's coming a time when God's going to stop doing both. He's not going to allow repentance. He's not going to give any time. What I'm trying to tell you is what it's going to be like when God stops doing both, when he stops allowing time, when he stops allowing repentance. So someone would go away and they'd say, well, that pastor over there at Berean, he is just the most mean-spirited person I have ever heard. He's a hate monger. No, it's nothing like that at all. You know, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. I'm forever grateful that God and his mercy, his love and his grace, and he reached down and he saved an unworthy sinner named Mark Smith. I mean, I am so thankful for that. I love Christ. I love his word. I love the souls of men. I mean, I I would love to see every single person in the world who disagrees with everything that I say, I'd love to see that person saved. I don't want anybody to go to hell. I want everybody to go to heaven, even Democrats. I mean, I have a message of truth to preach here. And the message is sweet. It's sweet to those who hear it and believe it, but it's horribly bitter to those who reject it. It's a savour of life to those who believe, but it's a savour of death to those who reject it. Now, whether or not it's good news to you or not, it, 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 it depends on how you hear it and how you receive it. And whether it's sweet or bitter depends on what you do with it. And so you either love me or you hate me, depending on what you do with the truth of God's Word. Now, I hope you love God's Word. I think all of you here probably do. And we can go out of of here singing, Oh, hallelujah, what a Savior. His heart was broken on Calvary. His his hands were nail-scarred. His side was riven. He gave his life's blood for even me. You can go out of this room today singing, Therefore, the redeemed will rejoice and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. So the message can be sweet as honey. Or it can be bitter as wormwood. Now, finally, I want you to notice this. A fourth thing here about it is the message to the masses. Verse 11 says, And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. You'll prophesy again. Now, what is the message that he's going to preach? Well, it's a message to repent. Do you know what some people have done? They've just taken the word repent out of their salvation vocabulary. I mentioned this before, but 
I, uh, I, and I'll probably mention it again because it sticks in my mind. I just can't believe some things that I read. But I recently received a track from a well-known fundamental ministry, and it's one that we've been associated with. I mean, they're always sending me flyers. They send me book offers, and they're always wanting us to use their resource material. So they've written a new gospel track, and they sent this gospel track, and you can put quotations marks around the word gospel. And I read it all the way through. And it spoke of belief. It spoke about forgiveness of sins. There was a message there concerning the cross. It ended with a prayer that was to be prayed and asking Jesus to come into your heart. But conspicuously absent from the entire gospel track was the word repent. There was not one word in this gospel track about repentance. Nothing about turning away from sin, nothing about forsaking sin, no mention that there's to be a change of mind. There was just simply an indication that here's all it takes. You just pray a prayer, then you don't need to worry about mourning over the fact that you're a vile sinner, that you've broken God's commandments, and that you're willing to turn from all of your sins. Not a single mention of it anywhere. Friend, that is not the gospel of Christ. That is a half gospel, if you want to even put the word gospel in the same sentence. Better said, it's a deceiving gospel. Now, the Bible speaks of repentance. What were the very first words that came out of Jesus' mouth when he began preaching right after his baptism? Do you remember what it was? Very first word. Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The condemning factor that you find... In the ninth chapter, if you've got your Bible open, let's just look back at the ninth chapter. The condemning factor in the ninth chapter is a lack of repentance. There at the end it says, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their fornication, nor of their thefts. God's Word says you must repent. And anyone who doesn't repent with the intention of turning away from all sin neither believes with the intention of turning all the way towards Jesus Christ. You can't do one without the other. You must repent and turn to Christ, and that's the only way of salvation. So here then we have the message of John chapter 10. There's a big angel, and he holds this little book, The little book is the revelation of God's method of redeeming this world from its curse. Now, you and I have also been given a book. We've been given a book to tell people about Jesus, a book that is the gospel of Christ that lightens people to the saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior. It is a glorious gospel. It's wonderful. It's sweet. It's sweet to those who hear it and believe it. Now, God's Word works where God wills. And what we must do is we must give this message to the masses. Just like it says here in that 11th verse, we're to take this Word, we're to give it to many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Everybody needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's the only way the world is ever going to be saved. They can't be saved without it. The gospel is repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time we spend together. 
Lord, as we look into your word, help us to very clearly understand what the gospel is, what must be preached, what men must, be, must do to be saved from their sin. There's coming a day when, the time, when time is going to be over. God will not give any more time. There will be no opportunity to repent. And so every person who sits under this message today needs to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior before it's forever too late. Lord, bless us. Bless in this time of invitation. Be with our people, and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.